0: tonight our subject matters will be as described up here on the board, uh, John the Baptist, God's plan of salvation, the temptation of Christ in the desert, and the beginning of Christ's ministry right Now you might say ho ho well I've heard all of that before and no doubt you have because it is one of the more popular, uh, Gospels, but tonight we want to look at it in a little different way. I hope that you brought your handout from last week, uh, because I'd like to refer to it, and please, even though I didn't say so last week, um, please bring the handouts, particularly the first one that you received, so that... Uh, We can use them on a regular basis. Please turn to this page. I think it's about the fourth uh, page in. The back of the second sheet of paper, I believe. This actually comes from our uh, session that we had last fall. But it's pertinent to every book of the Bible that we study. The structure of the Bible, I don't want to go through all the details. Hopefully we did that for most of you in our last session, but let's go through it rather quickly again. The Old Testament, which should be entitled the Book of the Promise, has to do with the old or the first covenant that God made with mankind. And it is brought out in detail several times in the Book of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, which consists of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right. That is what the Jewish people call, even today, the Law, capital L. It's important that you kind of at least be aware of that, all right, the Pentateuch is the most important part of the Jewish scriptures. Everything else takes the back seat to the Pentateuch. In fact, if you go to a synagogue, what they have in the Holy of Holies is the books of the Pentateuch. The first five books. You'll have five large scrolls. Now, If you go back in Jewish history in the original temple in the Holy of Holies what they had there was the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments as well as a vase that contained remnants of the manna that God fed the Israelites in the desert and Aaron's uh, or Moses' staff. Actually, it was Aaron's staff. Moses used it, but it makes no difference. Those were all destroyed in the Babylonian exile or Babylonian captivity when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in the beginning of the 6th century B.C. and destroyed uh, Solomon's temple and destroyed the Holy of Holies. Those... Items were destroyed and lost forever. It was contained in what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Since that time, after the exile, when the the temple was restored, they could not obviously put back in to the Holy of Holies in the second temple something that was destroyed. So what they put in there was copies of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Unfortunately, the first book, which we we call Genesis, was not written until some time later, but that was then put in at some later date along with these. And that is what the Jewish people still honor today. I don't say that they worship, although you might think so, but they certainly give a high degree of honor or reverence uh, to the first five books of the Bible in their Holy of Holies. The next group of books to be honored by the Jewish people and that we look to uh, for various points of history are the books that we would call the historical books. And usually they run... From uh, the book of uh, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 1 Samuel, 1st and 1 Kings, 1st and 1 Chronicles. Okay, those are the historical books. Then you have the prophetic books. Alright, you have Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiastes, two separate books: the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Proverbs, the Book of Job, and the books of the Psalms. All right. And then you have the wisdom books, which are always, I'm sorry, those were the wisdom books that I just numbered off rather than the prophetic books. The prophetic books are the books left by the literary prophets, 15 literary prophets and two historical prophets. The historical prophets being Elijah and Elisha. The literary prophets... 15, I'm not going to name all of those 15 because I wouldn't get them right anyways. And some of them are pretty hard to pronounce. But you have three major and 12 minor. The major are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Yes, sir. Since the second century BC. All right? No. No. And the same is true with the New Testament after the fourth century AD. No books were added. And those books all came from the first century, but the collecting of those books and the order in which they were put in didn't really happen until the fourth century by St. Jerome, um, and nothing has been added since then. All of these books from the Old Testament point to the event of Jesus Christ in one form or another. You may have to look a little difficult or a little hard or struggle to find it, but eventually all of these books are intended to point to Christ. Very important that you kind of understand that because our next move, and you're going to say, well, what's this got to do with John the Baptist? Well, it's going to be a roundabout way tonight to get there but i'll tell you later on okay as i said all of the books of the old testament 46 books point to the event of christ now when the new covenant comes into being with the death and resurrection of christ then you have 27 writers describing the life of Christ in the four Gospels, which are comparable in importance to the Pentateuch. So if we had nothing else to worship in our churches, in our tabernacles, we would put probably the four Gospels in there because they would be in the same level of reverence and importance to people of the New Covenant as the Pentateuch is to the people of the Old Covenant. The Acts of the Apostles are equal, you might say, in the level to the same historical books of the Old Covenant, Acts of the, of the Apostles, along with the Book of Revelation, right? Right? And then you have the doctrinal letters, most of those written by St. Paul, but in addition to that, you would have the letters, uh, the letter to the Hebrews. You would also, well, I think that's the only one I would include in that. The pastoral letters are those letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus and also John's letters, 1 to John, and the only letter of St. James. Those would go in the pastoral letters. And they would be somewhat equal to the wisdom books. Uh, well, you're partly correct. We left out those Gospels that were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Recently, there was a discovery, discovery uh, in a very loose term, of the Gospel of Judas. All right, you may have read about it. It was all over the newspapers, and of course, several copies were cranked out the moment that came out. That was not even written until the second century AD, and it was written by a group of people who were considered heretics to the Christian church. The same is true with many of the other Gospels. Not that they were condemned, but they were decided, it was decided by uh, very holy people that these were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they were not written during the apostolic time period. That is the deciding factor of what went into the New Testament. The apostolic time period ended with the death of Saint John the Evangelist towards the end of the first century. Anything written after that was written by people who were not um, witnesses to the life and times of Christ. Well, there might have there was there was no doubt a lot of writing. And some of it was good, some of it was factual and some was not. So they had to make some decision. The Pope, along with St. Jerome, okay? So, uh, Pope Damacus in the 4th century, along with St. Jerome, is the one that brought the New Testament together in the format that we have today. And like I said, there were lots and lots of writings. We don't deny that. We don't deny that some of it was good, some of it was factual, but some of it was not. And the deciding factor was it had to be a, written during the apostolic period, which ended with the death of St. John the Evangelist. Oh, yes. Yes. How did they vary on the gospel? They all recognize it in the same way. So all, whatever that number is, yes. all basically Yes, there is no dissension among any of the original um, liturgical churches. Some of the break-off churches, um, you know, the Baptists, and some of those more recent uh, what we call break-off churches, uh, they may differ. But in the original liturgical churches, the Greek Orthodox, along with the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, all agree on the same number of books and in the same order. Now, that's not true with the Old Testament. Uh, We've talked about this before, so I'll just go over it quickly. Uh, Between some Protestant versions of the Old Testament after the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, early 16th century, Uh, the followers of Martin Luther decided to go back and use the Greek, I'm sorry, use use the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. The Hebrew version of the Old Testament differed from the Septuagint version simply because the Septuagint version of the Old Testament was written in the 2nd century B.C. and it incorporated a number of books that were written in Greek six or seven books that were written in Greek, the Hebrew people from Israel would not accept that. And so they lived with two different versions, you might say, of the Old Testament ever since. And we still have two different versions. And so Martin Luther and some of the uh, people from the Protestant Reformation decided to go back and use the Hebrew version which lacks six books and parts of two others. Uh, I won't get into all of those differences, but that's why you will have <coughs> uh, only 40 books or sometimes 39 in some Protestant versions, such as the King James Version of the Old Testament. All other Bibles have, are our agreement in the New Testament. All have the same books, all have the same number of books, and in the same order. Yes, the Gutenberg Bible is a complete Bible, but it is of the King James Version. And it, the word Gutenberg only comes from the guy that invented the printing press. Yeah, yeah. Interesting point that Frank is bringing up about the Gutenberg Bible it, There is a copy of one of the original Gutenberg Bibles in the Library of Congress in Washington. If you ever are in that area, go to see it because it's it's on display. You can't pick it up, but you can see it. And it's interesting because when the Gutenberg Bible was first printed, it was printed by a number of people in Germany and in England. People from England supervised some of the printing. And, of course, they took the word of God literally. And so it's all one word. No periods, no dashes, no separations. It is just one word. Very interesting. It's difficult to read because, first of all, it's in German. And secondly, it is in Old English script. And of course, like I said, no printing, no periods, no commas, uh, no separation between sentences or paragraphs. It's one word. Okay. All right. Now, the reason I'm going through all of this is because all of our efforts as Christians, as Catholics, even stemming back to our Jewish heritage, all point to the event of Christ. And then the writings of the New Testament take that event of Christ and project it forward as to its meaning and its application towards salvation. All right? So that is the purpose of the Bible in itself. Christ's purpose, Christ's mission is to project himself through the people, through the church, for the purpose of salvation. And that is the whole essence of the books of the New Testament. Taking the event of Christ, the heritage from the Old Testament, and explaining it in the various forms for our benefit and for a communication a, a method of communication to mankind now if you'll go back to the this diagram here which is on the back of your first page <laughs> how many of you have never heard of God's plan of salvation or ever knew that there was a plan of salvation. Quite often, and I recall when I was in elementary school and even to some degree high school, I always thought, well, you know, God sprinkled the people around on the earth and said, go to it, children. You're on your own. Um, But that's not the case. There is a plan And everything that Christ did, everything that he taught, and the whole purpose, the whole mission, is to fulfill God's plan of salvation. And that really is, and I'm going to go through it rather quickly so that you at least get an idea of what we're talking about. All right. Even before creation, God had in mind human beings and earth and all of that that we have today to support ourselves. Because God, though he is perfect and has no needs as we think of needs, there is one need that God has. We all say that God is so perfect that he has no needs. Well, there's one exception let me digress for just a moment. We all say and John's gospel, as well as his letters, bring out the fact that God is love. And if God is love, that creates a need because love cannot be bottled up and kept within oneself. You must share your love in order to keep it going. Love, in some ways, is like alternating current. You stop alternating current in any one place, you're going to get lots of sparks and then nothing else, if you're still alive. okay. Love must be shared. So God had a need and a want and a desire to share his love and all that he was and all that he is with someone. So he created mankind. Let's leave the angels out of this for now because I don't know any angels and I don't have any good explanations of that. Okay. But God's creation was a result of his need to share his love. And so he creates. He creates the world as we know it, The moon, the stars, the the planet, you know, trees, animals, and so forth and so on. All of that we've learned in the, the first book of the Bible in Genesis in the Adam and Eve story, all right? And then he creates mankind. But before he creates mankind, he knows that mankind is going to sin. And so he has to have some kind of a plan because God being perfect... The rules and the laws of perfection state that perfect or perfection cannot coexist with sin or sinfulness. And though God knew ahead of time that mankind would sin and offend Him, He gave mankind free will to do that because to not give mankind free will would make us really no different than other high-level animals who are subject to instinct of their species and we would be the same way. So to give us free will, to make us in his image and likeness I don't know whether God has hair or not, so I don't know if I'm made in the image and likeness. No, I'm kidding. Anyways, uh, we are made in the image and likeness of God. Nothing else. No animals, no plants, you know, the mountains, whatever, the moon and the stars are not made in God's image and likeness. What does that mean? If God is pure spirit, he doesn't have an image as we normally think of image. He can't look in the mirror and see something because he is pure spirit. And therefore, we are made with body, soul, and intellect. All right, Intellect is a collective term, meaning that we can walk and talk and reason, respond to him, Uh, we can love and we can withhold love. And that is what sin is, a withholding of love in a very broad or generalized statement. Now, God knew that we were going, mankind was going to sin. And that would cause him, or that would cause a breach between mankind and God. And that was a breach that could not be rectified by mankind alone on anything that mankind did. So there had to be some form of reparation. And God knew that nothing mankind could do would resolve that breach and provide that reparation. So he had to plan ahead of time to give a part of himself, to give himself as a perfect sacrifice, a perfect offering that represented all of mankind to satisfy that breach. Now, that sets up other kinds of problems. Okay? One is, how can God provide mankind with part of himself in a normal way that would be acceptable? And so he is, in his mind, this is all before creation, plans that he must have a partner. He must have some human partner that will help him. And this is true throughout his plan of salvation. He has human partners that help him develop and implement various portions of this plan. And so the most important partner is the mother of God, Mary. She is mentioned right up in front of the book of Genesis, right in the front of the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve sinned by taking or partaking of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. We'll get into that in a few minutes. God then condemns them for disobedience. And I've heard people say, well, you know, I can't understand that. It was such a... Simple thing. I mean, you've got to condemn people for eating an apple off a tree. Well, you've got to remember that that whole story is a allegory. It is a metaphor for generalizing everybody committing some form of sin. And in this particular case, Adam and Eve were given a direct command from God that you shall not touch that particular tree otherwise you shall die now not die physically die spiritually right? we are all born with a soul okay and if you think about it I don't have one here tonight anybody have a glove okay it's a little too warm out for that anyways our soul is is like I Thank you. I hope I don't stretch it out of shape. <laughs> Just think of this as a human being. Very appropriate politically speaking, okay? Um, does the love move? No. It's the hand that moves. It is the soul and the intellect that moves our bodies. Okay. When this body dies, the soul continues to live. All right. That's the way we should look at ourselves. We are a twofold person. Actually three, but let's collectively say we are body and soul. Thank you so much. And it is important to always think about the Bible written in the same way. As we've said many times before, the Bible is written on two levels. The physical level, where you can accept things pretty much in a physical way as any other worldly event. But then there is a spiritual meaning directly below that. And that's what you're really trying to understand what is the spiritual meaning. So God had to have a special person to carry in her womb the divine body of the Son of God. And therefore Mary was thought about before creation long before Christ was even thought about. But God had her in his mind as part of his plan of salvation. And then he begins the plan of salvation with the call of Abraham. Right up in here, the call of Abraham. And then the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the flight to Egypt. And each one of those major events creates a change of what is being done and what is being implemented in God's plan of salvation. The call of Abraham actually begins the Jewish family. They weren't called Jews at that time. That didn't happen until much, much later. But that is the beginning. The Migration of all of those people down to Egypt had another purpose, and that was to sort of confine them in a nice way so that they didn't spread all over the world, and they created a nation. Then that nation got a little too big for the Egyptians, and they became slaves. God, through the partner or partnership, you might say, with Moses, brought those people out of Egypt. They sinned again in a major way by the molten calf incident shortly after coming out of Egypt. And God punished them by having them wander in the desert for nearly 40 years. not that they didn't know where they were supposed to go or where the promised land was. Because if you read the story, Jacob and his family went back and forth two or three times between Israel and Egypt for various reasons. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years, eventually coming into the promised land. But before they did, Moses set forth all of the rules and regulations as to how they were supposed to live once they did reach the promised land. And then God took him into his eternal rest because Moses by that time was over a 100 years old. All right. It was all through that period from the time of Abraham up to the time of just before coming into the promised land that the first five books of the Bible represent the historical facts of that period. Okay. And then, moving into the promised land creates a lot of other problems. There was no rulers. Once Moses and Aaron died, there were no rulers recognized by their own people. And so God raised up judges and certain people to take care of and guide these people. Among those judges were Samuel, for one, uh, not Samuel, Samson, pardon me, and a number of others. Okay. And this took place for three or four hundred years. And finally the people said they want a king because they want to be identified like the rest of the nations surrounding them, the rest of the people and other cultures. They wanted a king. God said, I'm your king. No, 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 that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted a king. So God tells the priest Samuel, all right, let him have a king, but warn them that they there will be problems with a earthly human king. And eventually, of course, there was. But they set up Saul as a first king. Began the Jewish monarchy. Right now, don't confuse this Saul with. Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul later, different person, okay? He was okay to begin with, but finally, you know, power and the old idea of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that proved to be very true with Saul. God was very displeased with him and eventually replaced him with King David. David was a very important individual in establishing what we call the Golden Age of Judaism around the 10th century B.C. He united all of the Israeli tribes, Israelite tribes, I should say. He united all of those tribes and formed uh, a very close, united group of people uh, with David as their recognized king. It was a golden age. David ruled for about 40 years. He built a beautiful palace and he wanted to build a beautiful uh, temple, but God said no, he'll let that go until his son Solomon came to power. Solomon continued on with the golden age of Judaism by building a magnificent temple. That temple lasted for 500 years or almost 500 years to the Babylonian exile. It was in that temple that they housed uh, the original stone tablets, the vase containing the remnants of manna, you know, and so forth that I had mentioned earlier. And all was well. But then when Solomon died, the descendants of Solomon, most of them, were not very good people, and the monarchy began to decline, and that was the cause of numerous problems, and eventually the Babylonian captivity, which began in the year 587 B.C., right The people were carted off to Babylon, most of them, not all right? It was finally in Babylon, and they lasted there for about 50 years, as indentured servants, not slaves in the way that we think of slavery that we had here in our own country, but more like indentured servants because the only people that were taken to Babylon were those people who could do the Babylonians some good, craftspeople, nurses, doctors, you know, uh, of that time period in that culture, uh, anyone that had some real smarts and education and talents to help them out, okay, they became like indentured servants. What was left behind were the aged, the ill, and little children. So you had a beginning of different groups. When they were there for 50 years, you had people born there to the Jewish people who never lived there in Israel so when they came back that created more problems but when they came back they finally brought the book of Deuteronomy that had been written earlier but never accepted finally in Babylon they got religion you know they got it and so they came back with a different attitude they came back with the idea of being true to the teachings of Christ through Moses And that is the new Judaism that we have today. It stems from that period, although there were major changes later on. The Judaism that we have today stems from the period after the exile. And that is when the Israelites were first called Jews. It wasn't until the latter part of the 6th century or first part of the 5th century that they were finally called Jews. And that is because they didn't come back necessarily to Jerusalem. That is not where the word comes from. They came back to the province called Judah. I'm going to bring in some maps next week for you all to have so that you can, when we talk about these different places, you could at least have something to refer back to to see what we're talking about. All right. They came back to the area called Judah and they became They were called Judahites, which is kind of a mouthful. And so eventually, after a short period of time, the word Judahites was cut down to Jew. All right. And accepted not in a derogatory way. So when you uh, refer to the Jewish people or to a person as a Jew, that is not a derogatory term in any way. And when you hear me use it, please. I do not intend or I do not use it in any derogatory form. It is only uh, for explanation. Okay. Now, in each of these different time periods and categories or events, God had certain people that he would use to help him out. Most of all was Moses and his brother Aaron to some degree. Then you had King David. You had King Solomon. You had all of the prophets. These were people that acted like uh, partners with God in a very special way. You had people whose names were changed, such as Abraham's name was changed from Aram, or Abram to Abraham. His wife's name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. You had... People like Samuel, Samson, keep getting those two guys mixed up. Samson, whose name was dictated before he was born. You had people like um, John the Baptist, whose name was dictated by the angel before he was born. Christ, the same way. Uh, Peter, his name was Simon. All of these name changes are people who are in partnership, you might say, with God. To carry out a major portion of this plan of salvation, John the Baptist was one of those. All right, a very important person who came along as the precursor to Christ Himself. All right, so that's how we get into. It's a long way around, but I told you it would be. Uh, That's how we get into how John the Baptist fits into all of this plan of salvation. There was an event way back with one of the first historical prophets, Elijah, where Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. If you go back to the first book of Kings, or is it the second book of Kings, really? Uh, Yeah, second book of Kings. The story of Elijah is rather interesting. He was a prophet. Now, a prophet is not a person who tells the future. A prophet is a person who speaks for God. And sometimes that person is told to tell the people of something that is coming up in the future. So, some of the things that the prophet tells the people really become prophecies and are fulfilled later. But that is not the purpose or the primary purpose of the prophet. A prophet is one who speaks for God. Elijah was one of these people. He was a very important uh, first of the big prophets. But his end... Well, his end was mysterious in a way, and he was taken to earth or taken to heaven in a fiery chariot and all of that. From that, a legend developed. Not history, not dogma or doctrine, but a legend developed that Elijah would have to return to earth to die before he really ended his life and career. And so that held true all the way up to one of the last prophets. And one of the last prophets uh, talks about Elijah having to return. But in between the period of when Elijah lived and this last prophet, that never was part of required Jewish faith or belief. It was strictly a legend. And Isaiah, in chapter 61, mentions a precursor. And he has in mind Elijah, even though he does not mention it. And it was somebody who was to come before the day of the Lord. Now, when you say the day of the Lord, you are talking about God himself. The Jewish people never expected God himself to come down and mingle with them in any way. They did, over the last couple hundred years before Christ, develop the concept of a Messiah because they realized after they came back from the Babylonian exile that never again would they be in complete and autonomous control of their own identity or their own land? Because after they came back from Babylon, they were under the jurisdiction of the Persians for a number of years, who then were conquered by the Greeks, who then were conquered by the Romans. And so they developed this idea that will perhaps... The new promised land would not be on this earth, but would be up there with the gods, with God. And then later they decided, well, who's going to lead us to this new promised land like Moses? And so then we developed, or they developed the concept of a Messiah, but it was never God himself. It was always going to be somebody like David who was the glorious king that reigned and did so much good and was a close friend of God. But then it was like a knight in shining armor who was going to ride into town and get rid of the Romans and then they'd live happily ever after. Well, that is not God's idea. That was not what God had intended in his own plan of salvation. His knight in shining armor turned out to be a babe in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And growing up, just like you and I and everyone else had to do by learning his ABCs or whatever they called it in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever he spoke. um, And he had to do everything else, including getting a job and helping his uh, foster father and so forth and so on. But at a point in time his so-called cousin or distant relative, John the Baptist, began preaching. Preaching a baptism or a ceremony of repentance. This was not new to the Jewish people. It had been going on for centuries. It was a personal ritual where people would go into a body of water Whether it be a river or a lake or whatever, it didn't make any difference. And they would go through a little personal ceremony, all right, and talk about uh, their repentance and begging God's forgiveness, etc. Along comes Christ. And that is where Christ and John meet up. Even though we know that John the Baptist was a distant relative. of Jesus, there is no indication that there was ever any contact at a younger age, except in that picture I told you about last week, you know, where the little kids are playing and so forth. Uh, There was never any true indication that they knew each other. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says that he never knew Jesus. Well, we're not sure of that because Israel wasn't a very big country and if there was some distant relation, John the Baptist might have known Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph and knew about him from a distance. But what he's saying in the Gospel of John is that he never knew that he was the son of God. But, late in his career, John the Baptist is enlightened by the Holy Spirit and given some idea that when you see an individual coming to be baptized and the Spirit rests upon him in the form of a dove, that is he who is the one to come. Now, the one to come, or as they would say, the anointed one of God, the anointed one of God is the English translation of the word Messiah or Christ. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ or Christus is Greek and Latin, and the translation of that is the anointed one of God. So whenever you see any of those, they generally refer to Jesus Christ. (coughs) It is at the baptism that Jesus, who lived with Mary for 30 years and lived solely as any other ordinary person of that time period would have lived. And he comes together at the baptism is where his divinity and his humanity are united in such a way that he knows that he is God. He knows that his mission is eventually to sacrifice himself to be a willing sacrifice for the redemption of all mankind. Prior to that, it is questionable as to whether Jesus fully understood his mission. But at this point in time is when that all comes together. And that is why the baptism of Christ and John the Baptist is such an important person and The event is an extremely important event. What it sets up is, you might say, the beginning of the end of the Old Covenant. The beginning of the end of the Old Covenant. An important issue because the Old Covenant, after the death of Christ, when the Jewish people rejected Christ, the Old Covenant was about to be withdrawn. The Old Covenant promised the Jewish people that if they were faithful to God, that God would give them land, descendants, and protection. Protection, in this case, sort of implied eternal life. But they rejected God at every turn God sent 15 literary prophets and they rejected and killed them all John the Baptist is often called the last of the Old Testament prophets because of his style, of his message and the fact that he was also killed by his own people okay but the beginning of the end is really at this point. In fact, John uses the phrase the axe is laid at the foot of the trees. I think you've all read that and probably wondered what the heck does that mean? Yes, 25 uh, verse... Um, where? Yes, verse 9. Even now, the axe lies at the foot of the trees. Now, we're not talking really about trees. This is a metaphor that John is using here, or John the Baptist is using, and Luke includes it here, meaning that because the people of Israel, the trees meaning the rulers of Israel, are rejecting Christ or will be rejecting Christ, they are going to be axed. And of course, eventually, that is what happens. That's the whole meaning of that particular phrase. Even now, the ax lies at the root of the trees. Uh, Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You have a number of these kinds of things. So, Whenever you come across something that sounds so out of order uh, and you don't understand and the footnotes don't give you enough information, bring it into the class and let's talk about it because it has a very important point. The idea is the beginning of the end begins here at the baptism of Christ because now the foundation is laid for Christ to fulfill his mission, which is the redemption of mankind, offering offering himself the perfect sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. Now, I often used to think, when before I got into teaching, well, why didn't God lower the boom, you might say, on the first Easter Sunday, when Christ rose from the dead, and fulfilled his mission entirely. Right? Um, again, it goes back to the idea of free will. God does not do anything without giving mankind ample time and instruction or guidance to mend his ways. And so he gives him roughly 40 years from the resurrection of Christ... Which was around the year 30 A.D. to the um, destruction of the temple, which is in A.D. 70. So we have 40 years, and then the destruction of the temple, which was never rebuilt, uh, was signal of God's total withdrawal of the first covenant. And of course, as we know from the wording of Christ himself at the Last Supper, uh, the offering of his body and blood is the beginning of and the sign of the new covenant, which we still have. But when people reject that, when people reject Christ and reject the teachings of the church, then they are no different than the Pharisees and the rulers of Judaism at the time of Christ. They are rejecting Christ. Well, that's true. But you see, and there's a roughly always considered about six months difference between the time of Christ's birth and John the Baptist, the Baptist being first. All right? Uh, remember that when the Julian calendar was developed there was an error made of anywhere between four and seven years. Okay? And so technically because another way of looking at it is that Herod the Great who was the one that slaughtered the innocents he died in 4 B.C. So Christ had to have been born before 4 B.C. And it was that error in developing the calendar of anywhere between uh, four and seven years. Yes, sir. There's lots of surprises in what we're reading. Good. And one that caught me in John the Baptist was John didn't know Jesus was there. That's right. And the dove appeared only and, and God's kingdom appeared only to Jesus, according to Putnam. Yes. Yes, but there's three times in all of the Gospels, if you take them together, where God appears, or at least a voice out of the clouds, so to speak, comes and verifies. And when you have the transfiguration is one of those times. And then um, what we call Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, is another time. And that's in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. (laughs) And it says very clearly, Jesus says very clearly that the people, the voice was for the benefit of the people. So we have to kind of look at it in both ways. That my gut feel is that the people heard it also or knew something was going on, right? But in this is sort of a private, you might say, ceremony. And so you could accept it either way. Um, Not everybody agrees with the footnotes. Yeah, okay? No. And that doesn't mean that because you don't agree with the footnotes, you're a heretic or something. I don't agree with a lot of this stuff. And I'll tell you both sides of it. That's important. So that you can make up your mind. There's certain things that are very cut and dry. Other things are not. And this is one of those that is not that important as to whether Christ was the only one that heard the Father's voice or whether Christ and John the Baptist heard it or whether Christ and all the people heard it. I don't think that's important. The important thing is we understand the purpose of this baptism. All right? Now, you might say, why... Excuse me. Yes? Oh, I'm about the- <laughs> Julian. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the, the Gregorian ca- calendar came later. I don't remember. About the 8th century, I think, someplace in there. Um, The importance of baptism. First of all, the importance of Christ. Christ was sinless. Christ was God. So you might say, why did he need to be baptized? Well, he didn't. I mean, we could could really say that. Why did he need to be uh, hung on a cross? Well, he didn't. Those things could have happened in other ways and had the same results. But this is what he chose to do. And he chose to use this particular event and method to begin his mission to the world. The idea of baptism is one of, first of all, humility. But secondly, it is a it is a sign of a commitment Right, just as the Jewish people had and still have, if you're an Orthodox Jew, the circumcision as a sign of commitment to God through Moses. Christians now have baptism taken from this event, elevated to the level of a sacrament, the second most important of all seven sacraments, and it becomes a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. So many people are not aware of that, and it's unfortunate. But your baptism is probably even more important than your wedding or marriage commitment, because you are committing yourself to God through Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ and it is binding on you forever. In fact, it is so important that if you are baptized in any other Christian liturgical Christian faith, Anglican, Episcopalian, Lutheran, etc., etc., not some of these real offbeat places, not the Mormons or the Seventh-day Venice, unfortunately. But if, and we won't get into that part of it, but if you are baptized in any other faith, you need not be baptized if you come into the Catholic Church. If there's a doubt, yes, you can go through that. Some people are not aware because they went through a dedication ceremony as a child in some other faith, but they have nothing to prove it. Okay, So then we go through and do a conditional baptism but it is not necessary. That is how important the sacrament of baptism is. And it is a one of a commitment. All right? So many people, particularly years ago, used to baptize kids solely to get rid of original sin. Well, that's part of it, but that's a relatively minor part of it. it Baptism, particularly for adults, gets rid of all sin. It is such a powerful sacrament. Okay. And next to the Holy Eucharist, it is the most important sacrament next to, therefore becomes second in line to all of the other seven sacraments. All right. So it's important that we are aware of what our baptism means to us. And every time you go into a Catholic church and you dip your hands into the water fountain, the whole purpose of dipping your hand into the water fountain is to remind you of your commitment of your baptism. That's the purpose. And if you do it going in, you don't have to do it going out. A lot of people can't wait to line up to get into that pool of water coming out. That's not necessary because hopefully you've received the body and blood of Christ which is still in you. And therefore you need not bless yourself with holy water coming out. There's nothing wrong with doing it but it's not necessary because you have something greater within you. Alright? So kind of keep that in mind when you are entering a church. First of all, it is the proper thing to do, to baptize, or rather, to bless yourself with holy water as a reminder of your baptism. Okay? And some say some short prayer uh, that goes along with it. Lord, wash me clean of all my sins, or some, some words of that kind, just to kind of reinforce your understanding of what your baptism was all about? Yes, yes. Now remember, Christ, and I was going to get to this, but you're, that's fine. Christ was man, and though therefore, as a man, as the human side of Christ, he needed to be baptized to recognize that all mankind have the ability or the capability of sinning. Though they don't, and he didn't, he didn't sin, that is, he was totally free of sin throughout his entire life because he was God. Uh, part of his action, just a small part of his action, because you just read the more important part, but part of his action was to recognize that all mankind are capable of sinning. You have the, some of the greatest saints go to confession or went to confession like every week, sometimes even more often. They used to say one of the popes, now recent popes, used to go to confession almost every day. Well, it wasn't that he was so sinful that you know he had to do it. It was he was it was an act of humility. Going to confession is an act of humility to recognize and to obtain the graces that are given to the penitent in that sacrament. So even though you have no sin, it is wise to go to confession every so often, partly to gain the graces to continue with no sin. Some people say, well, I don't have to go to confession. I didn't do anything wrong. That's not the point. Confession is like going to the doctor for a regular checkup, even though you feel fine. You just want to stay that way. All right. Did we uh, beat this to death? Any, Any other questions? I want to get into, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to get into the temptation of Christ. It's listed rather briefly here. What do I do with my book? It's listed rather briefly here, but it's an important part of the life of Christ. And in some ways, it's analogous to this idea of baptism being uh, a sign of humility. excuse me Christ is sent after the baptism immediately sort of into the desert now the desert throughout Jewish history has had various meanings it was a place of purification that is the forty years of wandering in the desert after being released or escaping, whatever, uh, from uh, Egypt at the time of Moses. It was a time of purification. All right? uh, there were other times uh, when the desert was looked upon as a place of refuge. And then there were other times throughout Jewish history that the desert was looked upon uh, in a negative way. For example, at one point, in time, people would, uh, the Jewish people would write their sins out on parchment, roll it up, pin it onto a goat, and send the goat out into the desert to be devoured by wild animals. That's where the phrase scapegoat came from. Okay? And it was part of their ritual. This was how that they would get rid of their sins. Um, we might think that's a little strange today, but in primitive cultures that probably was not so uh, terribly strange. But Christ, after his baptism, is sort of encouraged by the Holy Spirit, who is now present within Christ, to go to the desert. And it would be like going on a 30 or 40 day retreat. okay, Where you commune with God and you look to the future as in this case it would be Christ looking to the future and the future of his mission and what he was brought there or brought to earth to do. And it would be a time of communing with the Father. But at the same time he is faced with the terrible temptations brought about by the evil one. Remember, for all good things, there are reactions or negative things. For all positive forces, there is also negative forces. And so the negative forces in this case are the devil who is about to tempt the Lord God and of course after not eating and drinking anything for 40 days and by the way let me tell you as i have and some of you have heard this many times 40 in jewish writing is not a precise figure you've heard the 40 days and the 40 nights of noah and, and the ark and you've heard the 40 years of wandering in the desert and here we have another 40 days and We even had the 40 hours devotions and so forth. None of those are considered to be precise. In Jewish writing, since there were no calendars for personal events, if it was a long but unknown or imprecise period of time, they would generally use the number 40. Whether it would be 40 weeks, 40 days, 40 years, makes no difference. It would be 40. So when you see the word 40, don't think that somebody's checking off the dates on the calendar, okay? because they didn't have calendars in those days, not for personal events. As we saw right up in the beginning, and as we saw in the beginning of chapter 3, you go just for a minute to the beginning of the chapter 3, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee and so forth and so on and so on. That's how they would narrow down the time of a major event. And so that is Luke's way of narrowing down the time period when Jesus and John come together for the baptism. All right. Earlier in the beginning... You have a a similar time period um, that Luke refers to uh, just to narrow down the birth of Christ. So that's how we know that Christ was born somewhere around the year 4 B.C. Because he was born before the end of Herod the Great who died in 4 BC. All right, now, getting back to the temptation, it's divided into three parts. The temptation concerning bread or human needs, the temptation of power, and then the temptation to worship the evil one, Satan. And of course, Jesus being God sees all of this and rejects it by words or quotations from the book of Deuteronomy and the chapter, I mean, of Psalm 91 as well at the end. That is an extremely good example of when you are tempted in any way to have a specific line from scripture to reject the temptation, to help you reject temptation, is pick some line of scripture that is easy for you to remember and is meaningful to you. And when you are tempted to do something that is sinful or harmful to you in any way, use that line of Scripture to gain God's help, the Holy Spirit's help to avoid it. The whole idea for this temptation was, remember Christ lived in a normal way, but he lived with Mary and Joseph. We don't know exactly how long with Joseph, but could you find a more holy person than Mary, the mother of God, to live with? And obviously his life was extremely sheltered. So now he's out on his own. And the devil is really going to give him a crash course in temptation. And this is it. And what more could you be tempted with except the person that won that $76 million last Wednesday night? Uh, I don't think, uh, of course, that turned out to be 12 or 14 teachers, so that worked out fine. Okay. You like to see people like that get it. Anyways, the whole idea of the temptation in this case is really a crash course of experiencing the evil. And Jesus kind of comes through, of course, in flying colors. And then I want to briefly just go into the ministry, the beginning of the ministry in Galilee. Where else would you expect a prophet to begin his ministry except in his own home, his own town? And of course, like any other famous person, he's uh, treated just like any other brother or sister or sibling or whatever uh, in his own house, and he wasn't too successful in preaching there. But the story itself is rather interesting he begins preaching in Nazareth in the temple, and he reads from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recover the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Now, what does all that mean? In this culture, famous or important or highly scholar, schooled scholars would never preach to poor people because they felt that they were sinners and unworthy. So one of Jesus' And one of Luke's uh, best qualities, you might say, is treating the poor in a very special, elevated way because they had no one else to look after them. Somebody one time said, <laughs> with rather exaggerated tone, why is God so intent on favoring the poor? <laughs> and I said, well... If he doesn't look after them, who will?